The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's Wednesday, March the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are politics editor Pat Leahy and the new leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bacic. Ivana, congratulations. Thank you very much, Hugh. I'm absolutely honoured and delighted to have been uh, elected as leader of the party and somewhat overwhelmed too, as I said last week. But, uh, but really delighted. A big challenge is ahead, but I'm up for it. I'm reminded of the Ernest Hemingway quote, uh, which was about bankruptcy. So maybe it's not a good parallel, but that things happen gradually and then all at once. And in a way, that's the political trajectory of your career, isn't it? I heard you on the radio saying that, you know, if uh, if if the seat hadn't become available that you were elected to in the by-election last summer, you could still have been sitting in the Senate rather than leading the um, the Labour Party in the Dáil. Well, absolutely. And it's a great quote from Hemingway, actually. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was elected last summer in the by-election, which was very unexpected, as you said, my favourite headline was overnight success after 30 years, which summed up my political career, I felt, uh, you know, in, in, in that way of that sort of sudden sudden um, developments, sudden changes, but, you know, years of, of work as well. So, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Certainly, certainly it's been a rollercoaster year. You had stood for the doll previously, but in, in the wrong constituencies, is it fair to say? Yes, and, and indeed I haven't stood in a doll election in 10 years. So I suppose I was very, you know, it was very different, uh, very different context politically the previous time I had stood in the doll. I'd been really uh, grateful to the Trinity voters who elected me four times in succession to serve as Trinity Senator and, you know, loved my time in the Shannon and used it very productively. I was able to bring forward and get past more private members' bills or opposition bills than any other senator. And, you know, really, I think the Shannon has huge strength and huge uh, and brings huge extra value to the legislative process in our scrutiny of legislation, but also in the collaborative and collegiate style and debating methods that we use, you know, and, and I've seen a lot of ministers over the years in different governments choose to bring forward bills into the Shannon first in order to tease out any issues with them and uh, and discuss amendments in that more deliberative way. So I think the Shannon has real strength and I really did appreciate being able to to work as a legislator there for so long. Having said that, and I've seen election literature floating around because I think the count of the election for your replacement is, is happening as we speak over the next couple of days, uh, it is still a rotten borough and a stain on our democratic processes that Trinity graduates get to elect three seats. 
Well, first of all, I'm really hoping that Ursula Quill will win the Trinity Shannon by-election caused by my uh, election last summer to the Dáil. Uh, she's a fantastic candidate and uh, would make a really strong addition to the Shannon Chamber. Uh, yes, absolutely, the Shannon uh, processes overall are due to, for reform, not just the Trinity seats, but indeed the entire method of election. And in fact, you, you know, there, I mean, there's been so many reports for change. We all had really thought and hoped that the Morris Manning review would be the last one. And we, Labour senators and and in fact, I authored it. We were the only sitting group of senators to put forward a submission to that review, seeking a reform uh, and putting forward, again, practical proposals for reforms that you could make to make the Shannon a much more democratic chamber without the need for further constitutional referendum. Because the referendum on abolition, of course, uh, was defeated on the basis that people wanted to see a change as brought in. And there did seem at that point, and certainly over recent years, there seemed to have been more of a political momentum behind reform, which I would very much support. I mean, I would like to, and I always said I would like to have seen uh, at least at least as a first step, the six university seats open to graduates of all third level institutions. So to break that NUI Trinity division that's currently there and to have it open to all graduates. But equally, I would also like to see the election method to the other panels reformed. And, I, and as I say, we, we really developed strong proposals for reform that I'm still hopeful uh, government may bring forward. Doesn't seem to be a priority for this government, I have to say, but it did in the last government, it was at least indicated they would do it. Pat, what do you make of uh, Ivana's thirty-year meteoric rise to uh, to uh, to prominence and, and what it you, tells I us think. about <laughs> about the Labour Party? Well, I, I suppose it's a bit to unpack there, uh, Hugh. I suppose the first thing one would say, you know, is that there's two ways of approaching that question. One is about uh, Ivana herself, and uh, I think so much has been uh, written and windbagged uh, about her at this stage. There's very little that uh, that, uh, including the Irish Times, very little that uh, I can add to that. I, I, but I suppose the other way of looking at it is, you know, what it says about the Labour Party, where the Labour Party is, the future of the Labour Party and what role, um, if any, it's going to play in our politics and government over the foreseeable future during which time that Ivana is the leader of the party. I mean, I did the tot when writing on her leadership before, so I'm uh, I'm not sure if she's the eighth or the ninth or the tenth leader in uh, in the last twenty years. But certainly, there's been a quite a high turnover of uh, of leaders in the last two decades, and that with with it seems uh, an increasing velocity of uh, of the party's propensity to change leaders. Uh, I mean, Alan Kelly was only leader for two years, which uh, and that during a pandemic, and he didn't get to fight uh, a general election uh, as leader, which is unusual for any party that it wouldn't that a leader wouldn't get that opportunity. That having been said, it was clearly the the unanimous view of his parliamentary party uh, that he should no longer uh, lead the party, and whilst. That may have been, even by the standards of politics, uh, pretty brutal. It was clearly more or less uh, unanimous in the party and and therefore inevitable. You know, I think that the party is in a very difficult position. All political parties are coalitions, but the Labour coalition has been perhaps an unusually disparate one, bridging a gap between, you know, urban liberals and a lot of its more, more reliable seats tended to be in, uh, you know, the urban areas of rural constituencies, places like Clonmel, where uh, I come from, Tralee, Mullingar, Waterford, you know, places in rural Ireland, but in the, the urban parts of uh, of those 
constituencies. And I think that coalition is kind of broken. Ivana, I think she wouldn't mind me admitting, more uh, represents more the urban liberal part of that tradition. It seems to have lost a lot of the other part of that coalition. And there's a lot more competition for the first part of that coalition. It's urban working class vote has been, which it was always in an unequal competition for Fianna Fáil for, uh, it's now in an even more unequal competition with, with Sinn Féin for. It's urban middle class intellectual vote, if you like, faces challenges from all over the place, including the Social Democrats. So I think there is a number of profoundly difficult questions whose answers will have far-reaching implications, I think, for, uh, for Ivana's leadership and for, for the party as a whole. And while her record as a legislator in the Shannad is certainly impressive, legislating and indeed parliamentary performance as a whole is only, very, it's only a part of, uh, and perhaps a small part, of the responsibilities of, uh, of a party leader. The other parts of that job are, I suppose, you know, invigorating the party organisation, connecting with the grassroots communicating and establishing a rapport with the public uh, at, uh, at large, making decisions about electoral strategy, candidate strategy, driving through her will into the, the wider party organisation like that, ensuring that she picks the right candidates and then ensuring that the local organisations unite, uh, unite behind them, deciding electoral strategy and ultimately deciding what the party's strategy for entering or not entering government and with whom. Um, so, so, you know, I think, uh, I think she's got a pretty big job, uh, ahead of her. And unlike in the past, when you could always say in a much simpler and less crowded political landscape that there was a guaranteed level of support for the Labour Party below which it would not slip because many of those voters didn't really have other places to go. That's very much not the case now. And, uh, without sounding too apocalyptic uh, about it. And I'll finish on this, uh, Hugh. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that if Ivana isn't a success as leader of the Labour Party, there not, might not be any further leaders of the Labour Party, at least uh, in, the, in the way that we have known the party. I, I saw you smiling at some of that, Ivana, but but not at others. I mean, um, Pat, in some ways, lays out quite a bleak landscape there. Listening to him, uh, one of the things that occurs to me is that some of the challenges and the difficulties he describes facing the party are um, are peculiar to Ireland, and some are the same challenges that have been faced by social democratic parties across the Western world in recent years, whether it be Labour's Red Wall or the Democrats in, in the Rust Belt, or indeed the collapse of the French Socialist Party. We've seen it in a number of places. The, the Irish Labour Party was always rather unusual among centre-left parties across all those countries, because it was never... Um, a standalone majority party of government. It never commanded that kind of support. But that kind of coalition which he describes between middle class progressives and working class trade unionists has has been breaking down across the world. And I suppose I, it caused me to ask you two questions. One is, do you have any prospect of getting that working class base part of your coalition back? And secondly, um, do you have any prospect of making ground against the other parties of the centre-left uh, in Ireland, the, the, the Greens and the Social Democrats in particular, to actually claw back to where you might have been 20 years ago or more? 
Um, well, thanks, Hugh, and thanks, Pat, for uh, setting it out, as Hugh says, in a rather bleak <laughs> fashion. You've certainly given me a very clear job description there, and uh, and certainly it's challenging. But, you know, what's exciting about it, too, for me, taking on this unexpected new role, is um, what's exciting is the great team we have in Labour. And I think what perhaps that the analysis you've, you and Hugh have provided misses is that we are a very long established party. We're the oldest political party in the state and we are the w- political wing of the organised labour and trade union movement. And indeed, we have an incredibly strong base that, again, is often missed or is not evident perhaps uh, to uh, those looking at from outside. I mean, in the even in recent weeks, travelling around and meeting over Zoom, I've been struck with how strong our membership base is around the country in different constituencies, how strong our networks are at local government level where we have over 50 councillors over 20 area reps so that's a base that um that perhaps uh you know gives us a huge strength from which we build and grow and uh, and that's something that you know has lack has other centre-left parties uh, have lacked you're certainly right Hugh in asking in, in pointing out that this is not that the issue of the um the you know the future of this of the centre-left the social democratic or socialist movement across Europe is is is, is a bigger issue than just for here in Ireland. And this question of the, you know, how we win a working class voter, win back working class voters often asked. I think if I may say it's a somewhat, it, it paints a somewhat false binary, that idea that this, you know, that we've lost one aspect of our vote. The reality in Labour is, and I've been in the party long enough to know, is that we've always been accused of losing working class. As long, as long ago as I can remember, when I first joined the party in the 80s, the part, Labour was accused of having, um, you know, uh, lost out working class base of having of having this divide, this divide between the urban intellectuals and so on. I must say, I, I don't I don't really buy that because what what motivates me to vote for Labour and to support Labour and to be in Labour is the same as what motivates any of us in Labour. And that is a desire to see a more equal Ireland and a desire to see a country in which we have social democratic policies to the fore, in which we see really strong state investment in education and healthcare and housing in people's needs. And it's it's that concept of equality and solidarity and fairness, those core Labour values that that, that, you know, uh, that I suppose motivate me to stay engaged in labour and motivate anyone, whatever their background or whatever their, uh, or whether they live in urban or rural areas. And I do think also Ireland has changed as well. You know, we saw that in repeal in 2018, where the so-called urban rural divide really wasn't there. People voted according to their beliefs and views. And in the same way, I think Labour will build on our, on uh, on the base across different communities and across different uh, constituencies, as we've always done. We've always had to fight for every vote. So I suppose, Pat, I was struck by one thing you said about, you know, Labour have lost a guaranteed level of support. We've never had a guarantee. No party has a guaranteed level of support. You know, that's democracy. And, you know, we've no right to exist and nor does any political party. And we're very conscious of that. And we in Labour, as Hugh says, we've never been in a position where we could be in a, a majority partner, let alone standalone in government. And we're unlike other European left parties in that regard. But it does mean that we've always had to fight for every vote and that we're, we've always been very conscious of that. The difficulty, though, Ivana, and it's hard to cut across you, is that there's very, whereas previously in, in you know, in that period of the modernisation of Ireland when Labour, you know, periodically shot up and uh, in, in support and, and fell back after being in, in government. But, you know, talking over the last 30 or 40 years, while for much of that time, Labour was really the only one offering that social democratic, pluralist, equality driven vision of, of politics. Basically, everybody's offering uh, offering that now. 
Well, I wish that were the case. I don't think every party is. I think there are still clear policy differences in parties. But uh, again, I suppose my memory is long enough and my years of activism remind me that, in fact, it was always a crowded space. You know, when I joined again in the late 80s, you know, the Workers' Party were very actively recruiting and uh, and indeed growing their voice. What was then the Workers' Party, I should say, what became Democratic Left. They and Labour were seen as competing in the same field. And indeed, Fianna Fáil, and I, I think one of you pointed this out, Sinn Féin has effectively taken a lot of what would have been Fianna Fáil's base at that time. So, you know, Labour has always had to compete in a crowded field for votes. And I'm, I'd be very conscious of that. There has been perhaps a, a move to the centre some of the for some parties that would have been on the right. And we see that on many issues. But it doesn't mean that we haven't always had to fight in a competed space. And that's, again, democracy. And that's the nature of it. And, you know, what gives me, I suppose, grounds for optimism, and I am an optimist, I think I'd have to be in this job. What gives me grounds for optimism is the fact that we do have other individuals and parties with whom we share common policies and with whom we can work. And I've had a long track record of working on that cross-party basis to try and deliver change. I suppose also what marks me out, what for me marks Labour out, is that we're a party in the centre-left that is serious about seeking to deliver change. We're not apologetic about that. So unlike other others, we don't just shout from the sidelines. We don't seek to make I suppose, just symbolic gestures. What we want to do is actually see our policies delivered uh, through government. And that's a really key uh, aspect of our constructive approach to politics that, that will remain in place and, and that remains core to our, to our vision. I think the point is well made, Pat, that the country has changed um, enormously. I was listening to Kevin Cunningham, the uh, opinion poster and uh, political scientist, talking about the census. And, you know, the census of 30 years ago showed a population where almost half the population had not even finished secondary school and only oh, just over 10% had third level education. That has changed enormously on both those metrics in the in the last 30 years. So in a way, perhaps that base as previously constituted wasn't there in the first place. But the strategic thing I wonder about is that Labour went up and Labour went down over the course of elections over various decades. And it was usually the fly-by-night urban middle-class constituencies that gave it a boost or gave it a kick. Um, But those um, independent fiefdoms, as they almost were in those provincial towns which you talked about, kind of left the party with some kind of a solid parliamentary presence from election to election. And with that gone, that does make more of an existential threat to the existence of the party as a parliamentary force, doesn't it? I think there was a hope in parts of the party that the election of Alan Kelly, who's from very much from that rural Labour tradition, would reinvigorate the party to the extent that it could regain many of those seats, which, which, as you say, had been the, you know, albeit that they, many of them ended up as kind of individual fiefdoms. They were individual fiefdoms that, uh, you know, that, that were loyal to the, the, the Labour leadership by and large. And you're right that the middle class vote has tended in particularly in urban constituencies in Dublin has tended to be more, more fickle, but, uh, uh, you know, looking at the electoral map now and the challenges that face, because of course politics doesn't stand still, you know, when a new TD gets elected for a place, he tries to bet in and win the second election. They say that's always the, the one. If you can win the second election, then the chances are you'll be there for the long term. So you see, you know, Sinn Féin TDs who've been elected in the last election and the one before that now really trying to bet in into uh, local politics, the solidity of that uh, of that local 
local base. And that is a real challenge for Labour. As I say, it would hoped in parts of the party that Alan Kelly could give them that edge in those sort of constituencies. The polling would suggest uh, that he hadn't really achieved the sort of success in that that he might have hoped for. How that might have turned out in an election, we won't know now, but it is certainly... Uh, and I know, I know Ivan is now going to tell us that actually she's from Cork and from Waterford and place like that. But, um, uh, uh, I, you know, I think that is one of the real challenges facing her, not just to invigorate the local organisation in those sort of places, uh, but to find candidates and the importance of finding the right candidates in Irish elections simply can't be uh, simply can't be overstated, and maybe we will get a sense of how that is going in the uh, local elections, which are due in twenty twenty four. So, Avan has got a bit of a run in for that, uh, but she also needs to be getting her skates on. Where are the target constituencies for the next general election, Ivana, at the moment? That you think you have a real shot at increasing the um, the number of TDs the party has. Well, we've quite a number of targets, but it won't surprise you that I'm not going to start naming names. Uh, but certainly, as Pat says, you know, the local elections are likely to be the next electoral contest we face. And our our work on recruitment has, of course, already started. And indeed, Alan and, and uh, the team uh, in the party have already been working on this. And we're very optimistic that we will build on what was a good local elections for us in 2019, uh, you know, and that we will ensure that we have a stronger, even stronger network of local representatives of councillors uh, around the country after the next elections in 2024. Uh, you know, looking, I suppose, at the last local elections, I mean, Pat talks about the need to bed down vote, votes and so on. And certainly Sinn Féin had a very poor local elections in 2019. And, you know, it's no secret, they were very surprised by their own vote in the February 2020 general election and of course it happened to run enough candidates to capitalise on that so I think all of us are very conscious that yes the the job of recruiting candidates is really important but also so is the strategy around which candidates you run and when but I think everyone in every party would and and, uh, any voters would also be very conscious that you can't take anything for granted that running low or high in the polls doesn't mean that uh, that that that, in a particular opinion poll does not mean that that will be the outcome of an election and I'm a veteran of enough referendum campaigns and election campaigns to know that things can swing in the last week of an election campaign you know events dear boy events can transpire or indeed comments or clever messaging or communications can really sway voters and uh, and and so you know i think it's it's very difficult to make any predictions we are a couple of years out from the next election cycle that's the likely uh, the likelihood in any case and uh, and so we do have time to to build and grow so yes our priority and our big the big challenge is recruiting and building bases for lo- for local election candidates and beyond that for general election candidates in particular for more women. I mean, I've always championed the need for more women to become engaged in politics and to be elected. And so that will be a big task. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Is it worth considering again the party's position on its most recent record in government? I noticed that an Irish Times editorial on your on your appointment as leader said at one point that Labour should stop apologising for its role in the 2011 to, to, to 2016 coalition with Fine Gael. But then I noticed a letter writer later in the week suggested that the Labour Party hadn't apologised at all um, and that it was about time that it did so. The um, columnist Aidan Regan um, suggested that that Labour's position on this continues to be a kind of a millstone around its neck, arguing that it had to do what it had to do. Lots of people believe, including quite a lot of people on the left, believe that that's not actually the case. Is it worth just going back and getting this monkey off your back? Well, I saw the Irish Times editorial and I was very interested in it. And indeed, I've seen a lot of the commentary around our time in government from 2011 to 16. And I've been asked about it in lots of interviews. Alan himself referred to it as one of the reasons for his own resignation. And clearly, as I've said, you know, Labour ministers in that government had to take actions that no Labour minister would ever wish to take in normal times. But patently, it wasn't a normal time. The country had been bankrupted by the outgoing Fianna Fáil and Green Party government. And indeed, as a result of the fateful bank guarantee that was supported by Fianna Gael and the Green Party, but was opposed by Labour in September 28, 2008. And what, what I suppose, reflecting on the questions and reflecting on the commentary, what strikes me as really interesting is that Fianna Fáil and Green Party representatives who are, you know, some of whom are now in government, are never asked in interviews about their role in a government that bankrupted the country. And Fine Gael and Sinn Féin representatives are never asked about their role in voting for the bank guarantee that brought about such catastrophic financial consequences and which Labour opposed. We voted against it. And I was in the Senate. I recall voting against it. And I recall being surprised that, uh, in particular, that Sinn Féin were supporting it. So, you know, I do think we we do have to move on. We've now been out of that government for longer than we were in it. And those in their 20s now in Ireland who are facing such huge challenges on particularly on housing, but also in jobs, on childcare, on healthcare, you know, they weren't old enough to vote in 2011. So we do have to move on and we do have to confront the real challenges that are facing us as we come through COVID and as we witness the horrific war in Ukraine and the consequences of that for all of us on cost of living, on uh, an energy crisis and indeed on the environment too. So, you know, massive challenges ahead, uh, massive, uh, but also massive lessons from COVID about what the state can and should do and a real time for the centre-left voice and vision for Ireland to grow in strength. So I think there's an appetite there for that, Hugh. And I think that uh, we do need to move on. And, and you know, that's my response. I'm, you know, I've, I've reflected on it, as I say, and I do think that other represent, other party representatives have moved on. And indeed, uh, you know, it's in a perhaps a surprising way from decisions that they took that led us into financial catastrophe. I suppose this is a kind of a balance that's always been there in the history of the Labour Party, almost throughout the history of the state, isn't it? That on the one hand, I mean, you said earlier um, that that Labour is a party of the left that is not content just to uh, to hackle from the sidelines. It wants to get in and to make a real difference um, from within government. But the counterbalance to that, and we've seen lots of tensions in it over the years uh, in the Labour Party, is that the Labour Party, the accusation is, is the party that will make compromises for power and sell out its principles. Now, I'm not saying that that's right, but that tension 
goes right back to you know back to the eighties when you were there when militant were in labour. All those arguments about going into coalition or getting out of coalition, and it's it's it still seems to be there. And maybe that's why labour gets held to this higher standard that you describe, uh, other than in a different way than other parties. There is a tension there. I think you're quite right. And it's not just a tension for Labour. It's a tension for any small party going into power. And again, looking at the Green Party's, rec- you know, the, their trajectory, I think we see the same, uh, the same pattern. Uh, you know, again, it's a consequence of democ- of democratic, uh, um, democratic structures and the fact that a smaller party that goes into government necessarily uh, faces compromising on more of its policies than the larger party in government. And certainly in the 2011 to 16 government, Labour ministers were outnumbered two to one by Fine Gael ministers. So, you know, that is also a, an, an important point. But I do think that we need to stand up against the idea that parties always have to be punished for going into government because that is the way we deliver policies and that is the way to achieve change. So I don't think we should be apologetic about having taken uh, decisions to go into government in the past, nor should we be apologetic about seeking to do so in the future. But for me, I don't believe we should go into government unless we have the critical mass and the numbers necessary to deliver on key and core policies. And that, I think, is crucial. And I think all small parties have learned that over over many years. What do you think of this, Pat? Is this a tired debate at this point or is it still hanging over Labour? I think um, it's time in government and the party admitted this himself. Alan Kelly admitted, as Ivana says, that the party's time in government in 2011 to 2016 is still something of a millstone hanging around her neck. Whether that will simply pass with the passage of time or whether it requires an intervention by uh, Ivana on one side of that argument or other, either to defend the decisions that Labour took in that government and its part in that government and say, you know, we'll, look, we didn't get everything right, but we left the country in a better position than it, uh, than it was when we entered government and we make no apologies for that and we would do the same again. Or whether she chooses to say that, uh, no, we made an absolute hands of it, we should never have done that, we should have left government rather than make those decisions that Fine Gael forced us into. I mean, that's up to her, what choice, whether she wishes to take either of those options or whether, as I suspect she may do, simply to to hope that the passage of time detoxifies Labour amongst some of those, uh, amongst some of those voters that still nurture resentment against the party stemming from that time in government. One might add, I think, that the resentment that was exercised, or that was ex- excited in the minds of some voters uh, at that time was probably contributed to by Labour in the in the, the election campaign, the period before it entered government, when it suggested that it could protect voters from the the ravages of what a Fine Gael single party government would have uh, would 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 have done, um, on the broader question of uh, of you know smaller parties going in in government, it is certainly usually the. Uh, it's it's usually the experience of small parties when they go into government that they experience electoral difficulty afterwards, and there's numerous examples of that. But it's not always the case, actually. The uh, the PDs famously uh, flourished um, after a period uh, in in government, a government that uh, was re-elected in 2002 after the PDs time in government, which was occasionally torrid uh, between 97 and 2002, the PDs doubled the number of seats that they uh, won in the 2002 election. So a government that was seen that was seen by voters as performing well, both parties were um, both parties were rewarded by the voters subsequently. So it's not an iron law of 
uh, of, of Irish politics that small parties have to get monstered in the subsequent election. But what it requires is for the voters to believe that that small party has done a good job uh, in in its period uh, in government. And to some extent, that depends on, you know, things like economic circumstances with which they're faced, but it also depends on how the small party manages itself uh, in government. And, you know, we have a live... Uh, experiment going on in that regard at the moment with the uh, with with the Green Party, whose vote, according to opinion polls, is holding up, and I think that's because the Green Party is largely getting results or is on a track to get results on those issues that the people that vote for it or may vote for it care about. Now we'll see what yeah what happens, and we're only. You know, uh, as Vanna uh, correctly points out, we're a long time from uh, from the next election. But the evidence thus far at this point in government is that the small, the smallest part uh, of of that government is is not on course for an uh, an electoral monstering um, when the uh, when the time comes. So, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think small parties should be afraid of government. Many of them are. I don't think they should be because if they make a success of it, they stand a chance of. Uh, uh, of being rewarded by voters. There's another way of looking at that, Ivana, which is that um, actually, if you look at some of the policies put forward by Sinn Féin and the way in which it defines itself to the electorate, if you look at the combined vote of Labour and the Social Democrats and the Greens, and if you look at a number of other, uh, quite a significant number of other um, TDs who define themselves as being on the left, is that Ireland is much further to the left than it's ever been previously, and that just the challenge for Labour is to define its, space, its place within that in large space. Uh, yeah, um, sorry, there's a lot there in doing what you and, and Pat have said, Hugh, and uh, I'm just interested in Pat's example of the PDs. Of course, that could be the exception that proves the rule, but you are, but I do agree with you, Pat. I don't think smaller parties or any parties should be afraid to go into government. I think that would be disastrous for democracy. You know, and it's not just about going into the government. It's, it's, it's not about that at all. It's about seeking to deliver the policies you care about. I mean, I would like Labour to be able to deliver on childcare and government, to deli- deliver on a redistributive policy on wealth and on taxation that, you know, we've always stood for. And I'd like us to be able to deliver along with, you know, environmentalists on a sort of red-green politics that for me is always, has been, is the future of politics, that environmentalist and socialist um, combination. So um, that brings me to your question, Hugh, sorry, about, you know, the uh, the common ground with other parties on the left or centre-left or indeed in the green movement. And as I said, I have a long record of working with other parties and, in, and like-minded individuals and would, will, will continue to do so. And we've always done that in a collaborative fashion to deliver on policies that are common to us. But I wouldn't envisage any more formal alliance because my focus is on building and growing our own party as a standalone, standalone party and bringing our own message clearly on centre-left, progressive and constructive values to the next election, be it the locals in 2024 or, or beyond that, and, uh, and seeking as strong a vote and strong support for our values as I, as I can. So that's really the, the challenge. Uh, that's the big challenge, if you like, that uh, Pat has laid out as a more detailed job description. But uh, but I think that's that's the focus. It's not on, on other parties. And in fact, in the by-election campaign last summer, we took a very 
a very assertive view that we weren't going to engage in the politics of pulling down or tearing down others or trying to score political points against others. Rather, we were going to approach it with a positive strategy of putting forward our own policies and making our own arguments for change and doing so in a constructive way that what well, to the point where we didn't engage with uh, with you know sort of toxic toxic discourse or debate on Twitter we just sought to put forward a positive view and uh, and you know there is a real appetite for that more positive constructive style of politics that is less shouty less adversary less combative and we really saw that that messaging gaining ground in the by-elections so effectively and people saying they liked that that they really liked that different sort of approach to doing politics and i think that's re- that's really crucial to our to our our um you know our way of doing things as as we move forward and then a number of political analysts uh, not least among them uh, a certain mr pat lee have uh, have looking forward to the next election obviously sinn fein are in pole position and the prospect of sinn fein becoming the majority party in the next government is a, is a, is a very real one and at that juncture the question really at the moment looks as if it will be a question of do they go into coalition with a number of smaller left-wing parties or do they go into coalition with Fianna Fáil? Which, which begs the question, what do you make of Sinn Féin and its current position on the political spectrum and how comfortable would you be to be in government with them? First of all, I think it's far too soon, as I say before, far too long out from any election uh, cycle to be making predictions about whether polls will hold up because we saw in the by-election again in just a few weeks how polls can really change and shift and how uh, messaging and um, and events can affect voters' decisions and and uh, and outcomes. So I wouldn't make any predictions about the next election at this point. And again, my view of Sinn Féin as of any other party is we'll work with them on where we where we have issues of common interest or where, we have, where there are common policy goals, but we are not envisaging any sort of uh, alliance or any sort of uh, anything more formal because we want to grow Labour. We've enough of a job ahead to grow Labour from its base and to grow support for our values and our voice. And that's my focus. Can I just interrogate that uh, uh, a little bit? Um, Because uh, I think Ivana's going to have to answer this question sooner or later. She may not want to uh, answer it until closer to the the general election or not. But if Sinn Féin, uh, and I, I, I agree I agree with Hugh's uh, uh, analysis that there's maybe two routes to government for Sinn Féin. There's the head of a left-wing coalition, if the numbers uh, are there, or there's, or there's coalition with, Fien- with Fianna Fáil. So let's take, for a start, let's, let's take that, that first option. Let's assume that the numbers uh, are there for uh, a left-wing coalition that would need uh, Labour and would be led by Sinn Féin. Now, we know that uh, we know at this stage that Sinn Féin is not just a left-wing party, it's a nationalist party by some, um, you know, by some measures, a very nationalist party. And one of the central planks, I think one of the two central planks of a government led by Sinn Féin uh, after the next election will be the push for a united Ireland. Would Labour be prepared to sign up for that, to sign up to serve in a government that had as one of its chief priorities the achievement as soon as possible of, uh, of a united Ireland. 
on the United Ireland, I've very clearly set out my own position and that of the party. I would like to see a United Ireland, and I think most people in this jurisdiction would, and, and Labour stands for that. But we're also very conscious of the need to ensure that we don't undermine the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement and the core principle of consent on which that agreement was founded. So I believe we would need to lay the groundwork, we on the island, uh, would, North and South, would need to lay the groundwork very carefully before envisaging the holding of any referendum on unification. And in particular, I think we would see we would need to see uh, deliberative democracy processes north and south, uh, like the Citizens Assembly, using that sort of model to in, to ensure that we have the space to to enable citizens to debate how to go about such a referendum in a way that wouldn't undermine principles of the consent. And I suppose if one unpicks that, in order to establish Citizens Assemblies. Excuse me. One needs to have uh, built the uh, support for that in both Stormont and in Dublin and in the Oireachtas here. So you know there'd be a lot of careful groundwork that would need to be done first. We saw in Brexit how that wasn't done with such dreadful consequence. You know, with such, I suppose, well, of our view in Ireland, such awful consequences. But also we saw in repeal and in marriage equality how r- running, how in um, creating spaces and building a ground, building up the groundwork can really help. In ensuring in, in ensuring that referendum processes don't really uh, don't don't you know undermine I suppose public solidarity and community and, and communities and and how carefully we can build alliances through that process. So that would be my view on United on unification. But that's kind of avoiding the question, though, with all due respect, because what you're talking about is the traditional soft nationalist position of all Irish governments is that of course we want to see unity in the long term, but it's important to build relationships with the north. And only when we are ready should a referendum be contemplated and so forth. What Sinn Féin is talking about is something quite different. It is transforming the foreign policy of an Irish government and transforming the the policy priorities of an Irish government to the achievement of unity in the short term and as, as near as possible, Mary Lou talk, she would certainly want to be pushing the British government for a referendum uh, within the five years of that government's uh, uh, of that government's term of office. And the question, I suppose, is would you be prepared to go along with that policy, which would, I think, be different to the northern Anglo-Irish policy of all previous Irish governments? Uh, the question you're asking me, I think, is a very hypothetical one, Pat, if you don't mind me saying. And looking some years and looking some years into it's the not future. At all. So, as I've said, you know, I'm not prepared to uh, make that sort of speculation. I would say that I don't think a party on the left should be opposed to property tax, a tax on wealth, nor do I think that a party that is serious about environmentalism should oppose carbon taxes. So I think there are clear policy differences between Labour and Sinn Féin, as indeed there are between Labour and Fianna Fáil Fine Gael on different issues. And th- it's those sort of policy differences, I think, that would uh, militate against uh, or would, you know, I suppose, tip the balance against any sort of um, uh, arrangement or coalition or alliance. But I think it's too soon out to be making any sort of, giving any sort of answers to those hypothetical questions because my focus is on building Labour, building our policies, building our voice on the issue of North, on the status of the island and the issue of Northern Ireland as much as on any other policy around um, around childcare and healthcare, education or, or, and housing. So, that, so it's, the challenge for us is to build our own policy and build our own voice and our own support as we did in the by-election. And uh, and that's, that's really my focus. It's not on what other parties are doing or on whether we would agree with other parties' positions on things. You know, we, our policies are very clear and there are clear policy differences between us and other parties. And sorry about the Shannon, the Shannon Bell, which I know is probably going off on your in the background there. 
That must stir something within you. It you does. Know, for, it genuinely does. <laughs> I, I, I jump. You probably saw me twitching with the, I heard the Shannon bell and the doll bell still does years of, uh, of uh, ing- being ingrained. And the last question, because economic issues are tend to what drive um, political results in the end of the day, we're in a very unusual, um, very uncertain economic moment. We've got kind of inflation that we haven't seen for for several decades the question of of what to do about that is is very important i mean you you talked earlier on about the importance of labor's base and labor's relationships with the trade unions um sip2 and other unions are are calling for renegotiation of existing uh, pay agreements um others say that that's going to just create the 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 spiral of inflation um which we saw previously and which put this country into a disastrous position. What do you think should happen? Well, what put the country into the disastrous position before was the uh, bank bailout and the economic uh, crash worldwide, I suppose, rather than inflation itself, most recently. I know... Well, I'm actually talking about one of the country's several disastrous positions. I was talking about the one, <laughs> the one a generation earlier. Yeah, sorry, as I was as I was saying that to you, I was thinking, yes, you mean the 1980s? Okay, um, yeah, no, and, and there's no denying the um, the really frightening impact that inflation is having on people's uh, on people's day to day expenses, on their incomes, and and I'm hearing it every day from my own constituents across Dublin by South, in particular rental costs and mortgage rental costs and fear of being evicted and the fact that those who were getting by are now finding their income is simply not, they simply aren't earning enough to be able to pay rent and other basic uh, basic bills around fuel and energy. So that that is why I said in my speech at the launch of the leadership uh, last Thursday that Ireland does need a pay rise, that the most effective way to tackle increases in cost of living is not just the state interventions that are necessary to, for example, you know, give people more in fuel allowance and in targeted measures, but also to ensure that the that unions have the strength to engage in collective bargaining and negotiation to ensure people get a pay rise. So we need to see improvements in pay and conditions to meet the rising cost of living. And I know the SRI has warned against the, the what they, they're calling that inflationary spiral, but they did also say that a balance had to be struck. And I think when we're seeing employers around the country in every sector saying they cannot recruit staff, there is a clear need to offer people more pay because we need to, you know, that's one of the reasons why people are not taking up jobs, why we're seeing so many vacancies. And it is also a reason why people are finding the cost of living increases just so challenging and difficult is because uh, pay rises haven't increased uh, commensurate with increases in the cost of living. So I think that's a crucial point. But it's for me, it's tied to the need to ensure greater rights for collective bargaining and for uh, for trade unions. And I should say, I very much welcome the government's announcement today about sick pay. Uh, That's something Labour have been pushing for for some time. So it's not just about pay rates themselves. It's also about conditions, things like sick pay, like pension entitlements, like the gender pay gap. I mean, these are all part of a package of measures to improve pay and conditions for people who are struggling, who are working, but who are still finding it very hard to get by, particularly with rental costs and with childcare costs. And we've, again, got a big policy uh, to ensure that childcare costs will be uh, greatly reduced and that the state will guarantee a free childcare place for every child. We see that as a crucial part of building economic prosperity and building the development of our society. I've called for it as a Dun O'Malley moment, you know, like we talked earlier about Dun, you know, the, the move to a more educated population, the guarantee of a free secondary place for every child 50 years ago, transformative on the Irish economy and on Irish society. And in the same way, a free childcare place, I believe, would do the same for us. And we should be doing that. I mean, we should 
we're already investing more than we ever have in the sector, but it's piecemeal and it's, you know, it's still relying on private providers. We do need to move to a different model. I think just on that, on the point, sorry, yeah, I think economic issues um, will will come to, to dominate over the next six months because the inflation spike is obviously here to stay and we're heading into all those sort of cost of living pressures um, that, that you've described. I was, uh, as part of my extensive preparation for uh, the, 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 this morning's encounter, I was, uh, I was going to say I was reading, I was rereading um, uh, pieces of Ivana's book, uh, Kicking and Screaming, How Ireland Was Dragged into the, uh, the 20th Century or 21st Century uh, or whatever it was. And what struck me about it is that um, practically all the chapters dealt with uh, social, uh, social issues and issues of personal and sexual freedom. Uh, there was, you know, chapters on abortion and uh, divorce and uh, uh, gay rights and, uh, and so forth. And I suppose it's fair to say that they are the issues with which Ivana personally was probably most closely associated in, in the public mind. But I think that, you know, more pocketbook type issues will come to dominate politics over, uh, over the next party because those, those goals of uh, of of liberal Ireland that the Labour Party was in the forefront in arguing for have largely been uh, achieved, but also because of the extent to which global inequality has become a part of uh, of politics uh, in in recent years. I think Ivana may be onto something in the the childcare issue. I know Labour tried to make it a big plank of their general election campaign last time, and it didn't really fly, but. I think it will fly for somebody at some stage in the future, whether that's uh, Ivana's Labour Party uh, or not, uh, I don't know. But I think that the extent of the need and the desire among voters for the state to offer solutions to issues like this, which is greater now probably than at any time in the past, will mean that that is a political opportunity for somebody. Yeah, we should come back to those economic issues, which, as you say, are vital. Maybe maybe another time if you'll come back to us again, Ivana. If I could just say one line, Hugh, on that, which is, and first of all, thank you, Pat, for rereading my book, uh, which I think is out of print now. Uh, but secondly, you know, while I did focus on legal changes that were needed there, I, I would contest the idea that these are all social. For me, as a student union activist taking calls from women in crisis pregnancy. It was an economic as well as a social issue. Women from working class backgrounds and disadvantaged backgrounds who were unable to afford to travel to England were by far more impacted than any other women uh, by the ban on abortion the, and the outrageous laws we had under the Eighth Amendment. And similarly, issues that have been kind of traditionally described as social always have an economic aspect. Social and economic equality for me are absolutely intertwined and interlinked and and you cannot separate the two because there's always a class or financial or economic dimension. And I think that's crucial to our Labour message. And it's a point I made last week and I really want to keep emphasising because I think, again, too often, you know, we're described as, Labour described as only focusing on one or other. And in fact, these issues, social and economic, are both so strongly intertwined and nowhere more evidently so than in the area of childcare, which is you know, from from what I know from my own constituents, from what I know from around the country, it is a huge issue, as you say, affordability and lack of places and just an absence of the state intervening to ensure that every child gets this guarantee of an equal start. And on that welcome note of correction to Pat, which is always something we like to we like to hear in this <laughs> podcast, we will leave it there. Ivana, listen, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks also to to Pat. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can drop us an email at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We're going to be back very soon. But until then, thanks very much indeed for listening. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.